Hey listeners, this is Stephanie Porras, the Stiletto Surgeon, coming to you with another great podcast. Today we are covering the exciting and somewhat unfamiliar territory for us surgeons, business. More specifically, starting a private practice out of residency or fellowship. Since I can remember, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit, but with medicine, it can be very challenging to learn about business and even somewhat daunting. A lot of residents and fellows alike can feel that the stress alone of operating on patients is enough to worry about. Why would anyone want to add the concerns of business, overhead, risk, or unknown to that? Well, let's answer those questions of why we think private practice can be great, and furthermore, how to get started in that final year of training to open the doors August 1st. Everyone has sat through the token business lecture at the society meetings or listened to marketing, practice management companies, attorneys, and financial advisors tell us what to do to create success in private practice. Well, those are great resources, and really the more the better. The process of actual setup is somewhat unadvertised, meaning there are no books or publications with step-by-step guides on where to start. So let's hear it from the source, aka the resident or fellow about to hang their shingle. This is what Dr. Rafi Friedman, who graduated this week from UNC Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, yay, congratulations, and I are about to do. We are excited to share some of our own experiences and most importantly, give you some information that may make the process a bit easier. And don't worry about taking notes as I have posted the step-by-step of this conversation on my blog at stilettosurgeon.com. Welcome, Rafi, and thanks for being here today to divulge your experience and congratulations again. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here and to get to uh, talk about what I've learned uh, up until now. It's so great to have you. If uh, For many of you who don't know, I've been picking Rafi's brain now for the last six months since I met him. Um, he is an insanely great resource, and I encourage you all uh, to seek out resources, seek out mentorship um, with those like either like you or like-minded because it really can help get you started depending on whatever your journey is. Um, so, you know, with Rafi, I never actually heard this from you, but why did you decide to do private practice? What, what made you uh, go private versus academic versus group? So um, I think it was a few years ago, uh, probably in my third year of, uh, I did integrated residency. Um, so I think it was in my third year um, that I really decided I was going to do private practice. And, um, you know, I think in, in trying to break it down, um, like obviously everyone's goal is happiness. Everyone's goal is to be happy. Um, but different people have different ways of achieving that. You know, for some people, it's academic success. Uh, for some people, it's financial, uh, or at least they think it is. Um, for me, I realized about myself that um, I needed to have control over certain aspects of my career in order to be happy. And I decided and figured out that the best way for me to be able to have that control was going to be in private practice. Um, and then starting a practice is a bit of an extension of that. Obviously, you have the most control when you start a practice. Uh, that comes at a cost, too, um, both financial, time, emotional. Um, but again, I felt that that would be the best way um, for me and in, in my life that I could be happy. Yeah, certainly. I think that the autonomy of it all um, really is something that if you're motivated and and have kind of that desire to have private practice, you really have the sky's limit there. 
Um, you know, you set your own hours, you set your own pace, you are kind of the be all end all, which is a double edged sword, right? You're the hire, the fire, uh, as well as the surgeon, which is, which is tough. But, um, you know, from everybody I've talked to and, and, you know, Rafi, I'd uh, like to hear what your opinion is, but did you hear anybody say, uh, in your, in your kind of journey through this process that starting a private practice would be something that would be too difficult in today's day and age? Not really. Um, I, I talked to, a, um, can think of one person specifically that started their own practice and when I asked the specific question of what do you think about starting a practice straight out of training the answer there was that might be um, you know that might be a little difficult why don't you work for a, you know a year or two somewhere else and that's a common model that you see people doing where they'll, they'll get a hospital employee, employee job or academic job for a year or two and then start their own practice which is a totally reasonable way to go um, so I've, I've heard people um, give that sort of feedback, but overall, when when I get to tell people what I'm doing and I'm starting a practice, people are really excited about it, and and I get a lot of support. Um, noting that it it can be challenging for people that haven't done it, um, like a lot of my um, attendings and, and academics who want to give guidance. That's that's what they do. They're your um, mentors and teachers and stuff. But if they haven't started a practice or they haven't been in private practice, it can be challenging for, understandably challenging for those people to to really give advice on, on what I'm doing. Right. Absolutely. Um, so who, I guess, were your sources of information going through? So um, there were a few uh, things that stood out that, that were helpful for me to talk to. Um, I think you know, there are the you mentioned courses. There are courses always at at the meetings, and um, and I went to those. I went to everyone that I could, and um, and um, there was definitely value in there, especially in the beginning, because you get a good overview of different options and and different career options. You get to hear from certain um, experts and lawyers and accountants and things. And um, but it it always felt it was overwhelming, and and no one actually was telling me really what I felt like I needed to know. Um, it was really helpful for me to talk to other residents that had started their own practice. Uh, there were a few from my program over the years that had started their own practice, either right out of training or shortly after that. And that was really helpful because they obviously went through it and they could tell me, um, you know, mistakes they made and, and things they learned. Um, I, I did talk to a couple practice consultants, uh, never, uh, never paid those practice consultants, but, um, there are plenty of very nice practice consultants that have, have experience that will um, happily talk to you and kind of talk you through the process in the beginning and um, send you some information with a list of all the to-dos and starting a practice. So that, that was um, a little bit helpful in the beginning and wrapping my head around it. I think the most helpful thing um, was the relationships that I developed with, um, with private practice uh, mentors essentially in town, people that either have done what I am trying to do or doing what, you know, what I'm doing. And, um, you know, talking to those people has been the most valuable because they've done it or they're doing it. And, um, you know, they can really, they really helped guide me along the way. Yeah, I think what you said as far as um, going to the meetings and talking to people, you get a, a broad overview of what you need to do and that you can probably succeed in doing it. But it's almost like starting to build a house. Like, where do you start, right? what is the first thing you need to do to, to, to get off the ground? 
meaning do I need to go to you know the architect first? Uh, in our case, do I need to go to a lawyer first? And kind of setting up that team, where do you start? And that's sort of what I wanted to talk to you about because I really think that's the part that um, in, in situations like ours, um, you know, especially when you're a busy resident or fellow and you've got a family and you know, you're in debt up to your ears can be very challenging and, and also knowing who to talk to and who to trust. So kind of um, if you could make some comments on where did you start? What do you think is the most important place, uh, step one? You know that it, it's sort of obvious. Um, I'll say I'll I'll bring out an analogy and I'll bring it up again in a little bit. Um, but I've this is an analogy that has helped me that I've thought about along the way, which is um, would be like climbing Mount Everest. I've never climbed anything like that, and will never climb anything like that. But uh, <laughs> but um, you know, if you were thinking about climbing Mount Everest, the first obvious, but the first decision is that you're going to decide that you're going to do it. And honestly, that was uh, probably the hardest decision for me. Like I had, I had for years had in the back of my head, I, I think I want to start a practice and I could see myself starting a practice. Um, but going from that to I am starting a practice and this is the reality, that that was challenging. And um, uh that was really the first decision you have to make because after you make that, then you can get going. But if you aren't sure or you kind of wait around, then um, then you can slow things down. So that was the first real thing. And then the next really major decision that I think you have to do first is you have to pick your location. Um, again, seems obvious, but uh, I think if you aren't able to pick your location early on and you're doing things in multiple places, you probably spread yourself pretty thin. And I think uh, there's so many things you're going to have to do, but first just pick where you want to be. And that's going to be different for everyone. And there's different things that play a role in all of that. But that was also one of the first things that I did was I decided um, that I wanted to be in, in St. Louis where I'm from. Um, and then everything kind of went from there. Right. So location and kind of re, uh, researching within yourself on if it's something that you want to do. Yeah. Now, once you figured those two uh, aspects out, then what? Where do you go from there? Okay, yeah. So um, so let's bring uh, Mount Everest back. So, you know, it, again, if, uh, if I was going to try to climb Mount Everest, I would never try to do it by myself. Um, you know, the first thing I would start doing is figuring out who I would need, what professionals, people that are experts in what they do, people that have done things like this before, like who can I get on my team that can get me up the mountain uh, alive? And um, and that's that's really the first thing you have to do is build your team of prof professionals. Um, and I, I didn't know that was something I had to do. I kind of figured it out one day and someone told me that I needed a lawyer, I needed an accountant, or actually they, they more asked like, hey, do you have a lawyer? Uh, no, not yet. Hey, do you have an accountant? Oh, I, I know. Uh, do you have a real estate person? You know, in each of these things, I realized that I needed. Um, so, it really in the beginning, you're getting into into specifics. Um, was like I said, an attorney, um, and um, we can kind of go into details. But that that was helpful for getting an entity established. Um, an accountant was part of that also, um, and we can talk more about exactly what they did, uh, and a real estate agent. Um, those were kind of the main three people that I got initially, 
because you need those three people to do things very early on in the process before you can start kind of proceeding. Right. And so how early on are we talking here? Uh, if you're graduating, you know, the middle of June and 20 blank, uh, when should you start? Yeah, I think about a year before you need to start finding those people. I certainly was doing plenty of research on the location, um, you know, well before a year, maybe a year and a half, even two years before, but you can always research a location. There's, you know, that doesn't matter. But, but you really need to be starting the processes with, um, with especially real estate, I think a year out and, and, you know, my experience within it, and it's going to be different for different people, but I started looking at offices one year before, uh, when I will be opening. Um, and it took until it took about six months, five to six months to actually have a lease signed. So, uh, it takes a long time. You don't just see an, it's not like renting an apartment or something. You, there's a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of lawyer, con, you know, lease review back and forth. It takes a very long time. So, you know, that's something you really have to start early. Right. Not drag your feet. And I think the important thing uh, for the listeners here is that you can't really sign your lease uh, as your private name. So Stephanie Porras, you know, uh, can't sign my lease as Stephanie Porras, right? I need to create an entity. I need to create either an LLC, a PA, depending on what state you're in. So that's where having that team, like Rafi talks about, is really important because you need to have your entity set up prior to even signing the lease, which means that you have to have in place your attorney and your accountant because they'll talk back and forth when you create your entity. So all of these, this team is kind of playing an integral role together uh, about a year in advance. Would you say that's that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's a good uh, good timeline. Yeah, and, and so certainly there's more breakdown um, within that. But um, as far as you know, getting a real estate broker and securing a lease, um, it seems like moving forward, um, you can't really you can't really do anything without having that uh, practice business location address set up. Is that right? Yeah, the um, you don't need the actual address um, for a while. And in fact, when you initially set up, or I can speak about what I did, when I initially set up uh, my LLC, the legal business address was my home address in North Carolina, um, because you can always change that later, because um, you're not going to be able to wait until you actually have your lease signed to move forward with things that need an address. Um, so you know, I started with my LLC, and the other thing that the accountant helped get was the tax ID. Um, and that number, you know, basically like the social security number for your business, uh, is asked for all the time. So there's certain numbers and things that are asked for a lot and you need to have those before you can proceed with other applications and licenses and things And your tax ID or your, uh, EIN is also one of those. Gotcha. And kind of layering onto that. So you, we, we didn't mention the fact of, um, getting a bank on board. So when exactly and how exactly did you seek out a loan or line of credit? Um, and along that lines, I'm sure you had to build a business plan. So if you could kind of talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, for sure. So those are big things that are really important. Um, so uh, yeah, you need money to start a practice. Um, and you know, different people are in different situations. There may be people that are able to finance the start of the practice with their own 
um, personal money. That's not um, was, is not the situation that I am in, and probably a lot of people. So, if you're going to um, finance it through a loan, um, you have to find a bank to get a loan from. So, understanding um, how to how to start these conversations with banks and um, talk to them was was something that I learned over time was new to me. Um, you know, fortunately, banks are um, interested in talking to doctors that are starting practices. We're considered um, pretty low risk in the terms of uh, business startups. We have a very low, low fail rate, um, and so they like to loan doctors money. So you, you'll you will have banks that want to talk to you, um, and probably more banks than you want that want to talk to you. And um, I think you can sort of categorize it into large banks or small banks. You know, the large banks, the Bank of America, the Wells Fargo, you know, things like that. They, uh, many of them have divisions specifically for lending to physicians or dentists. Um, and I, I talked to some of them and then, uh, there's small banks also. I found that, uh, when talking to large, uh, banks, you know, they have a set plan for how they do these loans and, um, are, are more understandably, um, more rigid in kind of the rules and what the amount that they're going to loan and how they go about doing things. Um, that didn't feel as um, as right to me with what I wanted as as the way it works with a small bank. And a small bank, it's way more specific to you, and um, and you develop a relationship with you know maybe the president of the bank, and they get to know you, and um, they get to know your your plans for practice, and there's a lot more flexibility in what they can do. Um, you know, part of that conversation is the bank. Uh, is going to probably be the first people that want to see a business plan. So that um, that brings in the whole thing of uh, you're a plastic surgery resident, how are you supposed to write a business plan? Um, I don't have an MBA and, and never took like a business class, so that was a totally new thing for me. Um, I think the most helpful thing, because you can obviously look online and read templates of business plans, but, you know, a plastic surgery practice is a different kind of business than a restaurant or, um, you know, retail store. So it was really helpful for me to ask other people, um, that have started a practice if I could see their business plan. And, um, I found that people were very willing to share it probably because business plans are useful for starting a business and getting a loan, but maybe not so useful after that. So I think people have them and they're willing to, to show it to you. So that was really helpful to see business plans from other plastic surgeons and then sort of make my own outline and, and, and make my own content. And a big part of the business plan that I think was the biggest challenge for me, but also one of the biggest learning oppor uh, learning opportunities was uh, writing out my financial projections. So part of a business plan, you have to write out um, you know, every single month basically for the first year uh, and then year two and year three of what you expect your business to do. Um, and obviously it's all assumptions, uh, but it's part of how you prove to the bank that you are going to be able to do what you're saying you're going to do in financial um, terms. So I learned how to do that by finding a, um, a template online. There's a lot of templates. I found one that um, I thought was really good and just spending uh, weeks just struggling through it and trying to make the numbers make sense and, and you know have it the way that I, I wanted it. So all in all, I had a business plan that was uh, like 80 pages or something crazy uh, with financial projections in there and you know everything from 
um, you know, biography of myself to demographics of the areas and competitive factors and all those things. Uh, yeah, I think these these business plans, I think, are probably one of the hardest parts for us. Um, like you said, we don't have an MBA. We have really little access to any business education. So it's really... Um, you know, word of mouth and, and like Rafi, you know, I approached you to see yours, um, which I think is incredibly impressive um, and it, really helpful. And I think that's kind of the only way at this point that we have to do it. I mean, I found some others, like you said, online for family practice and such, but it's a completely different, uh, it's a completely different field. It's really tough. So uh, what what we have over here in plastic surgery is, is um, a little bit different. So catering to that uh, um, when you're writing this uh, has been a learning experience for myself as well. Um, and it's hard and it, you work hard on it. And I think that's mm -hmm. probably why people want to share it because they work so hard on yeah. it. Um, and, you, but, yeah, you, and you definitely learn a lot. Um, you learn a lot about business. You learn a lot about yourself, things you haven't thought you needed to think about and talk about. So it, it, it is helpful. Yeah. And then I think, you know, when putting it together and, and you're approaching a bank, I mean, I, I called a couple banks even so far and, you know, nobody really wants to take you seriously until they have that in front of them, until they know that, okay, this person means, means business. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think getting that set up as far as building your team, um, you know, I don't know what kind of lease agreement you have, but, you know, you're going to need a down payment. Is that down payment coming from your personal finances? Is it coming from, you know, a line of credit? Um, so all of this kind of seems to be occurring uh, within that first six months of, uh, you know, a year out from when you're planning to open your practice. And yeah. um, so it, it's a lot of things piled on top of each other, but it all sort of goes hand in hand. Yeah. And I think um, I think something that is never spoken about. So I want to make sure that people get to hear it because it just people gloss over the finances part. Um, and then never, never does anyone get to actually know what numbers are and, and what, you know, what you actually need. But so, um, you know, common way to do it that, that I'm doing it is you have a line of credit, uh, which is basically like access to a certain amount of money that you can draw from. And then when you draw from it, you get charged interest on it. Uh, and then you pay back that amount and then you stop getting charged interest on it. And it's something you have for your business. If you need to buy an expensive piece of equipment, um, you can draw from the line of credit. Um, and then you can have a term loan, which is a loan like uh, any longer term loan that you pay off over a certain amount of time. Um, and so I have a combination of both. And the line of credit is something that I was able to get set up very early on in the process. Um, the bank was much quicker to get that set up. And that is what I use to fund... Um, some of the earlier on things, the cost of the lawyer, um, the cost of the uh, security deposit on the lease, just like an apartment, you have to pay one or two months um, security deposit. And, you know, the uh, offices are, are expensive, so that's not a small amount. Um, so that, that's what the line of credit is helpful for in the beginning. And then the term loan you end up having for all your startup costs. Um, and it uh, it's not something I really understood until later, at least the arrangement, you know, with, with my bank, you don't have to have an exact amount that you tell them and then, and then, uh, and, and that's your term loan. They're able to work with you so that sort of as you need it, that determines what your term loan is. And then it eventually converts into a fixed term loan over the, over the course of the loan. Um, and then the sort of last, um, part about that, that I, I learned and didn't know is that 
for whatever reason, banks uh, want the length of the term loan to not be longer than the length of the lease. So that's an important thing because if you are saying, okay, well, I'm just going to get a year lease or a three-year lease, um, at least the banks that I spoke to didn't want to have that loan go beyond that amount of time. Um, and that means that your monthly payments are, are higher. So that's important also. Um, well, that's definitely something I didn't know. So, um, so if you're talking about a five-year lease, you're paying back you know, your hefty sum, depending on how much you take. Yeah. That's, yeah. And it's something else you taught me, Rafi, that I thought was um, important. So like you said, you get the line of credit, you can get that a year in advance. That helps you kind of with all the startup costs. Um, but you really don't have to pin down a, the fixed loan until when? Um, yeah, the, I mean, the fixed loan sort of becomes developed as you are starting up your practice. So, you know, right now um, I'm at the stage where um, I'm sort of creating my, the amount of my fixed loan by all my startup needs. So every time we have a, an invoice or something or, can, you know, the contractor says that um, they finished this amount of work and uh, so they, they invoice the bank and the bank pays them. And so the total amount is going up and up. And once we're done with all startup things, we're going to say, okay, we're done with the startup cost for the practice. This is the total amount that it costs. And now that gets converted into a loan that you pay a certain monthly amount. Um, for the term of the loan. So it really doesn't become a term loan, at least the arrangement that, that I've worked out until the end, um, which was always stressful for me because it's like you, you think you know how much it's all going to cost, and but you don't really know and you hate to ask for too much and end up with a huge loan that you don't need, but you also definitely don't want to ask for too little and end up running out of money. Um, and just, you know, again, to put numbers to it, because I don't think people talk about numbers enough, um, in my business plan, I said that I would need a five to six hundred thousand dollar term loan, uh, in addition to a hundred fifty thousand dollar line of credit, um, and I uh, intentionally was to the more expensive side. Um, unfortunately, it's going to be less than that. Um, hopefully, a good deal less than that. But just to give people a, an idea of of what I what what is reasonable to ask for. Yeah. Thank you. So. Um... You know, I think moving on, um, even though finances, we can talk about all day long uh, yeah. because these startup costs, as I'm finding, are, um, you know, uh, it's it's scary coming, especially coming from nothing, right? I mean, we have you know very little yeah. to put down of our own. So, but how did you decide, kind of moving into your business's mission, your brand voice? Because um, I think, especially in plastic surgery, that's pretty important, especially starting out on your own. Uh, and getting integrated in the community? Um, that's a great question, yeah. Uh, so this is something that's just going to be so different for for everyone. Everyone has their own character and the own you know, their own type of practice. And, um, you know, you are, uh, you know, if you're someone that's going to start a practice, you're going to have a, like I said, a voice to your brand. You're going to have just a, um, a certain way that you communicate with the world and uh, the way the world sees you and things. And a lot of uh, the way that that's done is is going to be on your website and on social media and, and through various marketing. Um, you know, I think the first thing that is important to rec recognize about ourselves is that plastic surgeons are probably some of the worst people to figure out things like 
websites and marketing and some some people inherently get it and, and can do really well but um, a lot of plastic surgeons I think struggle with it and websites are expensive and marketing is expensive and um, you know it's difficult when you're starting out to be able to afford um, you know support for all those things so I think that uh, one thing that I believe is we live in a really different world now with how plastic surgeons um, uh, can present themselves and I believe should present themselves. And it's, I think less about putting the plastic surgeon on a pedestal. Um, I don't know that people respond to that like they used to. I think it's a lot more about the patient and their story and their journey. And so I think that like the advice I would give for, for people who are trying to think about what voice to have, what, what they should put out there is just to really focus on, um, on that focusing like first on knowing who your customers are, who your patients are, and then just think about how, what you can do to give them value, um, not what you want to see, um, not you know, but what your patients would want to see. And you don't need ten thousand people to follow you on Instagram. Um, you just need the people who you're serving directly to get value from what you do. So yeah, write con write content, great, you know, be real, um, and you know, don't look at someone else and try to do what they're doing because that's not real. Um, just be genuine, and and I think that that's a successful model. Yeah, I think that's a great advice. I think along those lines, somebody had told me, um, you know, be in control of your own narrative. So know who you are, know what you want to bring to your patients and the population that you're trying to serve, and be and write your own narrative. Never let anybody else kind of take that away from you. Um, and I and I think as as part of that, you know. It, what you want to what you want to give will come through um, and you and be successful from that would you say that's accurate yeah yeah for sure yeah so so you know yeah i think it's funny because there is so much plastic surgery marketing especially with social media and you do see a lot of these instagram and facebook accounts with you know thousands and thousands of follow followers and some of them i just i'm like how is this really what people want, you know, or, or vice versa? This is amazing. This is great content. Um, you know, so I just try to, uh, try to learn from those that I think are, um, kind of similar to what my narrative would be. Uh, yeah. And I, I, you know, something that has, um, helped me a lot and given me a lot of inspiration. Um, and again, it's going to be different for different people, but I think that it's important to spend time, um, learning about marketing, not from plastic surgeons or doctors, but learn about marketing from people that write about marketing. Um, you know, there are so many incredible uh, authors and podcasts and books on, on marketing. I, you know, my, um, one of my heroes that I read just about everything he can write is Seth Godin. And like, I think that we will all be a lot better um, and be able to be a lot better for our patients if if we listen to the people who's who's you know are, are experts on that sort of thing um, and not necessarily just look to other plastic surgeons and try to do what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is again kind of seeking out our own business uh, degree yeah. <laughs> uh, on the side of doing finishing up the MD stuff. Right. Um, all right. So switching gears here. So all right, you're now in. Um, in January, uh, six months before you know your practice, six to eight months before your practice is set to open, where what where, where does the planning stages go from here? 
Yeah, so at six months out, you should be pretty close to signing your lease. Um, and, you know, at that, following the signing of your lease, depending on what situation your office is in, um, you probably are going to be doing some sort of some sort of build out uh, on your office, some sort of construction, unless it's an existing you know, practice um, and you just go right into it. So that's, and that's a long process also, you know, that involves architects and contractors and permits and all those things. Um, and you definitely don't want to be in a situation where you want to be starting August 1st, but construction's not going to be done for months after that. Um, and there's a lot of uh, factors there that can be out of your control, like permits. Um, you know, so you definitely want to start that early. And the did you have did yeah, you have Rafi? Did you have a consultant come in that does medical practices to help you with your build out as far as what's uh, what's legal? Um, you know, doorways, uh, knowing where outlets go in a medical office. I mean, those are those are little nitty gritty things. But yeah. uh, who um, who helped you with that? I didn't. Uh, it really was the architect um, that whose job it is um, to really answer those questions. And um, I'm sure there's all different kinds of architects that the group I used was really good and had done medical offices before, but they weren't like medical architects or anything. They just, mm-hmm. um, you know, were, were good at, at those kind of things. But um, for a general office, there isn't that much that's specific to medicine, different than a different office. I mean, there's a few things that they would tell me, like, you do need medical, you do need hospital grade outlets in your office. Why do I need hospital grade outlets in my office? It's an office. So you just do. Okay. So then you do, you know, so there's just things that people tell you along the way um, that are specific maybe to a medical office. Um, but I didn't have a specific consult- consultant come in. I think it'd be different if you we're building out an operating room um, in the beginning, then you probably would want someone, either an architect that uh, specializes in that or a consultant that can really make sure that you're doing, because that's when things like doorway width and hallway width and uh, a lot of other rules come into play, but just for general office. But um, that being said, I had to play a lot of defense um, in standing up for um, the way I wanted the office to look. People make a lot of assumptions when they hear doctor's office. They make a lot of, you know, going towards the medical side and Mm -hmm. people make a lot of assumptions when they hear plastic surgeon's office and go towards the incredibly fancy office side. Um, and you have to really hold your ground based on what your vision is to make it what you want. Um, and it's really helpful if there are private practices in the community that you've, you know, you can spend time at and actually, um, get inspiration for that. That's really helpful. Understood. So what about, um, when you're signing your lease and just to, just to check off this is, how um, did you negotiate? Because I didn't know this. I didn't know that the the and if it's, it's obviously different at lease or buy, but let's just say you're leasing. I didn't actually know that um, the landlord would pay for some of the the build out. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's called uh, tenant improvement. So mm-hmm. you know when you're leasing an office uh, and you do a build out, you don't own um, you know the countertops and the flooring. When you leave and go somewhere else, you don't strip all that off and take it with you, the landlord owns it. So the landlord contributes to the cost of it because um, the next tenant may benefit from what you've already done. So that is one of the things in addition to rent um, and in addition to a couple of things I'll I'll mention in a second that you negotiate uh, when you're signing your lease. So a certain amount of money that you get 
reimbursed to you. Um, I'm not sh that's the um, arrangement that we have. I'm not sure that there's people that if, if they do it up front, but it's reimbursed, so you have to factor that in when you think about your loan. Um, but a certain amount that you get back per square footage is, is how it's usually calculated. And then you also can negotiate, um, you can negotiate what's called free rent. It's not really free, uh, nothing's really free, it's just uh, the rent is um, applied on the back end of your lease. So if you have a five-year lease and you get two months of free rent, then your lease is five, uh, five years and two months. You just don't pay rent for the first two months. Right, which is really helpful. So the longer I feel like you could probably extend out that free rental period, uh, especially with a new practice startup, was helpful For sure. uh, with your cost of overhead. So, right. um, so yeah, so so kind of moving down the line here. So we've got you know you're six months out. You've got your lease. You know you're signed. Uh, you know, you've got your architect, uh, you've got your plans for the build out. Now, now what, now getting back into kind of where your surgeon, getting your licenses, your malpractice, uh, kind of talk to me about that. Yeah. So there's a whole list of, you know, these things are more typical for, uh, you know, any physician. So, um, you know, not as, uh, not as sort of out there and figuring it out on your own. I mean, there's lists you can see of all the different licenses and things you need, but um, but also something you have to start early. So if you don't have an, uh, you know full medical license in the state that you're going to practice, um, which I didn't because I was in North Carolina with a, a resident training license, so that's something you have to get and that can take some time. And that's that you can do you know anytime. Um, you can do that really early during residency. So that's something you can do early on. Um, and then there's a few licenses that you need. You need um, a DEA license. And in uh, some states, you need a state, uh, they have their own um, like state narcotic bureau or something like Missouri has one. So that's another license that you need. And it's important to know that because you cannot, um, I believe you cannot apply for a DEA license until you have your state license. Um, there's an order to that. So you have to have both. And, and the reason all these are important early on is because you can't proceed with many of the other things you have to do um, until you have these numbers. All these other people that ask for applications, these are the things they ask for. They ask for the DEA, they ask for the state, uh, they ask for your um, state medical license, um, you know, and then medical malpractice is another thing that we can talk about too. Yeah, so why did you approach medical malpractice uh, coverage? Uh, so medical malpractice insurance, um, is, uh, dealing with the, there are many insurances that you have to get when you start a business. Um, I don't know if we'll get into all the different kinds, but obviously medical malpractice is one of them, but, um, it, it's been a challenge for me because, um, I've had to talk to a lot of different insurance agents. They're never really... I never was able to find like one agent that could take care of all these things for me. It was just talking to different people and sort of um, not a lot of transparency and it was always confusing to me why different agents would give me different um, premium amounts from the same companies. Um, but you know, medical malpractice is something that you need to have early because you cannot um, apply for hospital privileges or a, said a different way, a hospital won't push your application all the way through until you have medical malpractice insurance or until you have a, you have to have a policy number. The policy doesn't have to be active. You just, they just need a policy number. Sim, uh, the same with getting set up with insurance contracts. Um, you need a, a policy number. But sort of the catch is, is that uh, in general, malpractice, medical malpractice insurance companies won't issue 
the policy until um, uh, 90 days before you start. But then uh, if you think about that, so it's three months before you start, but it can take more than three months, uh, sometimes three to four months, to get hospital privileges set up. So then you're kind of stuck. Um, so there's a little loophole that, that I've learned, which is that the, the medical malpractice companies um, will issue a policy earlier. You, you have to give them an earlier start date, um, and then you just push off that start date. But it allows you to get a policy number um, and sort of proceed with some of those applications. And it really is just about a month period where you're in this thing where you need a policy number, but you're still more than three months before your start. Yeah, and I think that's a huge pearl for anybody that's listening. And I even, I've confirmed that within my own uh, uh, hospital administration and, and talking to some malpractice companies now um, who actually already knew um, about that kind of glitch. Uh, so they were, you know, forthcoming and saying, we're, we'll give you an er a policy number early and then set off your actual insurance start date um, to allow you to get your privileging and, and the rest of your needs set up. But that's a, that's a big one. And I could see if you're kind of going into this sort of blind um, hitting that and then all of a sudden your, you know, your day one opens and you're not, you don't have privileges anywhere and therefore you can't practice. Right. Um, so, so that's a big one. So, um, so, okay. So moving from insurance and, and you had mentioned malpractice insurance, uh, what other insurances do you need? So there, um, there's something called a, um, business owner's insurance and a business owner's insurance plan or people call it a BOP um, and I'm not an insurance expert at all this is just things that I've learned in getting me set up but it is just a general term for all, for a seemingly endless set of different types of insurance that um, you need when owning uh, a business and running a business and it all gets put under this business owner's policy and it can include work, workers comp it can include um, uh, general uh, liability insurance and um, a whole bunch of other kinds of insurances, but something to know so it doesn't catch you off off guard or surprise when you see it because it it surprised me, made me nervous when I saw it. Is on um, I think it's standard that on your lease for your office as a um, as a condition of your lease, you have to give them proof of insurance uh, by the time your your lease starts and they list the different insurances and it includes a general liability and property insurance so that's normal and uh, that's you know that's that's something that you would need to have have otherwise but this insurance agents are good at because all businesses need these kind of insurances they're good at telling you what you need and getting it set up and none of those insurances are very expensive it's nothing compared to medical malpractice insurance mm -hmm. understood okay so you know now we're four months out um, and you're kind of balls rolling. You've got your you know, hospitals being set up. Um, what about office staff and, and, and hiring in the beginning? Um, that is uh, also, you know, it's hard to, um, to get your team together. You know, I think that a decision you have to make is what kind of team you're going to have in the beginning. And um, you could take different approaches. You could take an approach of hiring a whole, you know, big team and a bunch of different people. But um, employees are probably your most expensive overhead. Um, and I, I think you could get yourself into some trouble there. So, you know, the approach that I'm taking that, and we'll see how it goes, but the approach that I'm taking that, that works for me is I decided that I wanted um, – team members to support 
little bit more of the non-clinical side of things because I really need support there. So, you know, hiring a patient care coordinator, hiring a, you know, receptionist or an office manager. Um, and I'm starting off really small with just two employees, knowing that I'm taking on um, all of the clinical responsibilities in the beginning. So I am uh, the nurse and the MA, but in the beginning when you don't have a, you know, a lot of patients, you can handle all that and then you can hire people as you need it. So, um, you know, the, the approach I'm taking is starting small and then, and then hiring as I go. Um, and it's challenging to find people. I have post, posted jobs online on Indeed and um, you get hundreds of applications a day that you have to go through and 90% of them are totally uh, not relevant they just apply anyways, so it, it's really challenging, but um, but eventually you find someone. Yeah, you know, somebody told me actually recently, one of my attendings, um, and this is a, a seems like a good idea, um, if you're hiring with, with two people in mind, let's say a secretary and a, and a, a patient care coordinator, nurse, um, to try to make both of them actually have nursing degrees, to try to hire two nurses versus just a, a secretary with no degree, and that way, they grow with your business and they see the, the business start and then you can move them back uh, once, you know, the practice is, is moving and, uh, and things are growing. Um, or let's say, you know, your patient care coordinator is out for a week um, and, you know, you need a secretary can't come back and act as a patient care coordinator and those kinds of things. So you've got cross coverage. Uh, which I thought was kind of a good idea, uh, probably a little more expensive because I'm sure a nursing uh, uh, salary person with a nursing degree is obviously more expensive than a secretary, but something to think about um, as yeah, far as a, down the line. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's good advice. But yeah, you just have to be aware of the kind of average and expected salaries for people with different uh, positions and different degrees because um, you could end up in uh, really high salaries early on, and then you have then you're sitting around and not bringing in any money and paying paying right. a lot of money. Now, are you pay? Do you pay um, hourly with uh, with the staff, or do you pay a salary? That is uh, something that uh, plastic surgeons probably all do differently. I've spoken to um, people that pay their staff hourly. I've spoken to people that do salary. Um, I spoke to people that have some hourly, some salary. Initially, I'm starting off uh, with salaried employees. I, um, it just with my, with me, my personality, and um, the way that I see my my practice, it it felt weird to me to have people clocking in and out. And people, a uh, consultant was talking to me about um, like a fingerprint scanner, and I just didn't it didn't sit right with me. I I want to, you know, build a a team that is um, has a lot of motivation for what we're doing and it just made more sense for them to be salaried. So that's the direction I'm going. We'll see, we'll see how that goes. Okay, all right. So, um, you know, we've talked about getting your privileging at hospitals. Uh, what about surgery centers? How did you go about, uh, you know, kind of getting online there? Yeah, um, another challenge uh, because as, uh, you know, I found out pretty quickly, a lot of surgery centers were not excited to talk to me. Um, as a plastic surgeon. I think that um, a lot of these surgery centers are, are you know, owned by non-plastic surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, or um, other surgeons. Um, there, there's some that are, have plastic surgeons in ownership, but they, um, 
maybe they would talk to me, but they would say they don't have any block time, um, you know, or um, or they just wouldn't be so interested. So I, I had to ask around a lot and and really you know find surgery centers that were had time and were excited to have someone new. So. Um, but you just you you call around and you talk to different surgery centers and you see who's interested in having plastic surgery and probably more importantly who can support a plastic surgeon from the standpoint of has the equipment. Um, I think that if you were to go to a surgery center and be the first plastic surgeon there, there's the challenge of making sh sure that they have the equipment and the the staff won't necessarily know your procedures or be able to help. Um, and uh, but yeah, you just kind of look around and, and find different surgery centers and that's an ongoing process also. Gotcha. All right. So kind of getting down to the last few months here, I mean, as far as uh, setting up your EMR and your billing, are you going to be all cosmetic, insurance, What? Or, I'm sorry, all uh, cash pay or versus insurance? Um, what are the decisions there? Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of EMRs uh, that are out there. Um, they range from, um, you know, pretty simple and um, obviously more affordable to uh, you know, the Cadillac uh, EMRs, which can do everything under the sun and are more expensive. Um, but you find, you know, you ask around and um, you can do demos and at the meetings you can see different ones and um, and then you talk to them. You should negotiate uh, the cost for those EMRs. They'll all work with you, especially starting out. They'll give you um, better deals. And generally EMRs, they're softwares now, so they'll have, um, you know, monthly rate and then also some sort of startup fee so those are all things that you can negotiate and should negotiate um, and um, and then you should find that out uh, earlier on because the training um, uh, at least for the MR that, that I'm using the training is pretty long and extensive and it goes on for a while so you'd want to start that training um, a few months in advance so that you're comfortable with your EMR and you have it set up and all that um, and then uh, as far as billing um, you know, billing is something that I think, um, unless you have, for some reason, have some experience with it is a huge challenge. Um, you know, there, uh, at least I feel that there's no way that I can fully take on all the billing, um, set up and all of that myself getting set up with insurance contracts. So that was one place that I did find a, um, uh, billing company that has a good reputation to help get all that set up, get my insurance contract set up, get all the billing set up in my EMR. Um, because small mistakes uh, in that process can put you back uh, months if you're planning on um, on doing some insurance cases. So you really want to make sure that you have people that do that, that know what they're doing and, and um, are guiding you in that process. Great. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, and, and I think the important thing to stress here with billing companies is don't just talk to one, talk to as many as you can um, and and find somebody that you think is going to have uh, uh, good communication with you. Right. I mean, you don't just want somebody that's going to handle everything and you're never going to see or get feedback. Right. Uh, especially in, you know, your board collection period. And so, that. Yeah, and that's going to you know be different depending on what kind of practice you want to have. I mean, it may be if you're going to have a heavy insurance, you know, type practice, you may um, want to hire an in-house biller or you know have something more like that. So there's someone's there really working on it versus a, a you know um, third-party company. So it just depends on the mix that you plan to have. Um, so yeah. yeah. Okay. 
So um, by no means is this list uh, discussion exhausted, but exhaustive, excuse me, but um, you know, just for the sake of time here, I think just finishing up with kind of your website design and marketing and um, we talked a little bit about building your brand earlier, but um, you know, as you're stepping forward now in the next few months, uh, the doors are gonna open. Uh, what's, what's on your mind? What's, what comes next? What comes now? Well, it really, um, you know, gets to the point where you spend, you know, I've spent almost a year now, um, you know, every day focusing on, you know, get a, getting everything set up and it's like revving, you know, revving your engine and just, uh, getting it all revved up, but not being able to, you know, to put it into drive. Like it, it just, um, it's definitely at the point now where I'm ready to go and, um, there's going to be a lot more, a lot more challenges, but, um, you know, that these last few months have been a lot of fine little details that you're not, you don't need to do, um, before then a lot of, you know, f ranging from picking out furniture and actually ordering furniture, ordering, you know, surgical instruments and, um, you know, finding a waste management company There's all these little details that come up. But I, I think that, um, you know, if I could go back and, and, uh, say something myself like a month or two ago, it's that all those details come up as they're, as they are needed. Um, and then you just, you figure them out and find solutions. It, it would be very overwhelming to spend too much time looking at a whole list, um, you know, which I have, but looking at a whole list of every single little detail that you need because uh, it just, it would make you crazy and you don't need to have all these things figured out. Um, but there gets to be a time in the months before where you just kind of one by one go through each of those details. Gotcha. So that's where you're at. So uh, any advice oh, as far as ASPS uh, rules and regulations that you've encountered? Um, yeah. You know. um, so you have to be, um, you should read if you haven't the American Board of Plastic Surgery rules um, uh, that you can see on their website just to make sure that you are doing what you're supposed to do and probably most um, like relevant. And it, it, it is, um, you know, it makes sense. The, the Board of Plastic Surgery doesn't want people advertising uh, as practicing plastic surgeons before they finished residency. So, um, you know, if you're making a website, then, then you just uh, wait to advertise until you're finished with residency. You, you don't start scheduling patients, um, you know, July 1st uh, while you're still in residency. You just wait. And, you know, it, it comes down to just a few weeks. You just got to hold on. It's... Uh, but just it's important to read and make sure that you do what you're supposed to do. And, and the other important thing is that um, that that it, uh, they really focus on is um, the board uh, board eligible and board certified status. And if you're joining a practice, uh, making sure that um, nowhere in the practice does it you know say uh, our plastic surgeons are board certified. If you're joining them and you're not board certified, you're board eligible. Um, and then also making sure that you don't have the logo of the board of plastic surgery on there also. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, anything else you would uh, hope to add and, and wish everybody to know? Um, I would say two things. This starting your own practice is um, a big challenge, but um, it's, so it's definitely been the hardest thing that I have had to do in my life and will continue to be, you know, one of the most challenging things that I've had to do. But it also has been an incredible 
um, experience. And, and I can tell you my office construction isn't done yet. They're, they're about to put the floors down. They're, everything's painted and the countertops are on. But I can tell you that like walking through an office that um, was designed in my head and then written down onto paper and then drawn into blueprints and like walking in there and seeing it in reality it there's not many things like that like you when you start a practice you have the ability to um, build your dream job and everybody wants a dream job but you have the ability to build it so that's an incredible thing and it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of money but um, but y anyone can do it and um, there's gonna be different ways to get there but it, it it's an incredible thing. So that's the, the first thing. And the other thing I'll say is that, like you talked about in the beginning, um, there is not a lot out there on, um, on how to do this in detail. And um, I'm so glad that, that we're doing this now because hopefully this is part of the start of it. But, um, but I, you know, for anyone listening, anyone can always reach out to me. Um, and if they're thinking about starting a practice, practice or going to start a practice, I'm happy to talk to anyone and share whatever resources I have. Um, I, I like talking about this stuff, uh, if you can't tell, and, um, <laughs> and and I'm happy to talk to anyone. Yeah, sir. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Rafi, you've been such a integral part of uh, the last six months for me, like I said. I mean, I didn't know where to start. Um, I didn't even know if I should start. Um, I find talking to you incredibly inspiring. Um, certainly, you know, you have made me feel that it can be done and you don't need to have a business degree or have a parent that was a medical professional or, or, or what have you to, to really get things going. Um, and so I really want to thank you for that and thank you for your continued mentorship. You know, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, Rafi's a year ahead of me. So uh, it's going to be nice to have this conversation in another year and figure out where we both are at. Uh, and and I, I wish you the best of luck. Um, and, and Rafi, if it's okay with you, I'd like to put your email, uh, within the podcast, yeah, sure. um, under, underneath and y'all can email him. You can email me as usual. Uh, if you'd like to pick our brains further, uh, we're just going through this. Um, and, and, uh, you know, by no means do we know all the, all the right answers and I'm sure we're going to have some wrong, uh, wrong turns, uh, along the way, but, um, you know, if we can help anybody try to answer one question, certainly that's helpful. Um, so, uh, without, uh, without anything else to say, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, please, uh, go, um, and check out the blog of this discussion. Uh, we'll have kind of a step-by-step -step guide on there, uh, of what we've talked about today. Um, again, stilettosurgeon.com or porousplasticsurgery.com. Uh, again, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, you can always email sp at porousplasticsurgery. And until the next podcast, I hope everybody stays safe and healthy uh, and has a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, summer. Thank you.